Previously on Flying the Line, the events and decisions leading up to the 1982 ALPA presidential election. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including free access to air medical doctors for eligible members. The Aviation Medical Advisory Service can answer your aviation-related medical questions free of charge, helping you stay certified and on the flight deck. Visit alpa.org resources for more information and where to call. Welcome to the Flying the Lion podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 7. The End of the O'Donnell Era. The Election of 1982, Part 2. Augie Gorse clearly topped the list of some people to whom J.J. O'Donnell could not entrust ALPA. John Gratz of TWA, who had been among the first to announce that he would be a candidate, did not worry O'Donnell. He did not think Gratz could win. O'Donnell always enjoyed good relations with Hank Duffy of Delta and, under different circumstances, might have secured something approaching his blessings, if not an outright endorsement. But the budding alliance between Delta's leadership and Gorse absolutely enraged O'Donnell and almost certainly was the key factor in his decision to re-enter the race. In short, O'Donnell feared that Gorse would wind up running ALPA through his alliance with Delta. O'Donnell based his 11th-hour attempt to recover his political fortunes on his ties to Ronald Reagan. Although the evidence is anecdotal, the consensus is that the typical ALPA member supported Reagan's candidacy in 1980. As we have seen, O'Donnell began building ties with the Reagan campaign staff in 1980 and would later capitalize on those contacts. He believed that he could rekindle his political spark within ALPA by claiming that his ties with the Reagan administration would be ALPA's salvation. When coupled with the truly disturbing effects of Braniff's bankruptcy, this influence could be the winning factor for him in 1982. If he could convince BOD members that he could better serve ALPA as a go-between with the Reagan administration than any other candidate, then his chances were good. But this approach held hazards for O'Donnell. He had no sooner launched his campaign to hitch a ride on the Reagan bandwagon when he fell afoul of the Labor Protection Provisions, or LPP, issue. Gorse made sure that O'Donnell would stub his toe on the LPPs. Reagan canceled the Carter administration's LPP regulations in January 1981. Because the Braniff bankruptcy had focused attention on the fact that the LPPs specified in the Airline Deregulation Act of 1978 had never been revised, as promised by Reagan, O'Donnell confronted an obvious problem. O'Donnell was doing his utmost to shield the Reagan administration, and himself, from any LPP blame. His attempt to link the LPP delay to the Carter administration made little sense. His repeated denunciations of Jimmy Carter, who was in no way responsible for the long delay, struck a note of blatant political pandering. O'Donnell would later insist that Carter's LPPs, as written, were worthless. 
but unemployed pilots clearly preferred flawed LPPs to none at all. For O'Donnell to blame Jimmy Carter for the absence of deregulation LPPs more than a year after he left office struck many board members as disingenuous at best and downright shifty at worst. Focusing additional blame on airline management, which opposed the LPPs from the beginning, simply restated the obvious and only compounded the problem. O'Donnell's critics were quick to pick up on these weaknesses, particularly his contention that LPPs should be achieved through collective bargaining rather than by federal legislation. Augie Gorse introduced a formal resolution that began, Whereas the long-awaited LPPs have not been forthcoming, and whereas there exist today three separate ALPA pilot groups on the street, and concluded by urging O'Donnell to continue his efforts in the legislative arena to secure LPPs, including first right of hire. Gorse's resolution set off a long floor debate that put O'Donnell on the defensive. O'Donnell sought to defend himself and shift blame from Ronald Reagan. He praised Nancy Kassebaum, the Republican senator from Kansas, for her help in putting pressure on the Department of Labor. Then, O'Donnell shifted to an attack on the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. But this approach also called attention to Reagan's failure to issue the LPPs. Congress had already sent up LPPs once. O'Donnell, in obvious frustration, finally resorted to a blatant appeal to what he saw as rank-and-file ALPA members' pro-Reagan views. He hoped that by going over the heads of delegates attending the executive board, he could score political points. O'Donnell's emergence as a champion of the Reagan Revolution struck many observers as forced. Although O'Donnell insisted that he had always been a registered Republican, many close associates were surprised when he made that public. A long list of ALPA heavyweights, friends and foes alike, thought O'Donnell was a staunch Boston-Irish Democrat. When news of O'Donnell's turnaround candidacy became common knowledge, many BOD delegates would regard it as evidence of bad faith. O'Donnell's age further inflamed the bad faith factor. He would exceed age 60 before his fourth term ended should he win re-election. How could O'Donnell justify continuing in office once he reached age 60? Theoretically, he could continue as a flight engineer to age 65, but as an ex-pilot, that would violate ALPA policy. ALPA was at that time engaged in multiple lawsuits as a defendant in cases filed by ex-pilots who wanted to revert to second officer status at age 60. O'Donnell's re-election would set a damaging precedent. The campaign that followed was a curious one. Formal debates at various pilot domiciles featured three candidates, O'Donnell, John Gratz, and Hank Duffy. Although both Gratz and Duffy had attended the anti-O'Donnell unity meeting in New Orleans, sponsored by Chuck Huttinger in July, they were in no sense a slate. But Gratz's candidacy worked to Duffy's advantage, because as a favorite son, he would neutralize the TWA bloc. Had it come to a second ballot, the TWA vote would almost certainly have gone to O'Donnell by unit rule. Football games and wars, it is said, are won in the trenches. 
That's where the Delta machine won Hank Duffy's election. The Delta pilots, who had historically been very disciplined at BOD meetings, raised the art of ALPA campaigning to new heights. They brought a large contingent of non-delegate volunteers to the convention. They used this manpower to hold hands with practically every delegate who might support Duffy. Wavering delegates, whether they represented only a few votes from a smaller or ant council, or several thousand votes from a large elephant one, received special attention. Delta's hospitality suite, which featured elaborate Cajun cuisine, undoubtedly helped. In a close election, little things count. The technical efficiency of the Delta machine built momentum for Duffy. The Delta pilot's war room was a technological marvel. It bristled with computers, delicate count boards, phone banks, and the like. From this war room, the Delta machine tracked every delegate's vote on an almost hourly basis once the BOD meeting began in Bal Harbor, Florida. If a previously committed Duffy voter showed signs of wavering, the Delta machine knew it almost instantaneously and dispatched a well-briefed volunteer to help guide their decision. But the Delta machine was by no means a strictly Delta operation. Chuck Huttinger of Taka would prove to be a crucial player. He used his influence with the Group 5 airlines to siphon critical votes away from ant councils. The disciplined Delta machine carefully courted the Group 5 airlines. Many of them were supposed to be safe for O'Donnell, but the weakness that Ashwood saw in O'Donnell's political plans became glaringly apparent among them. The Delta machine was quick to remind these ant voters that O'Donnell had deferred to United, the mightiest of the elephants, at the 1980 BOD meeting. The United group had staged a three-day walkout at the instigation of John Ferg, primarily over the crew complement issue. For ant airline pilots, putting a third crew member on their flight decks was almost a guarantee of bankruptcy and unemployment. O'Donnell, seriously worried that the United Pilot Group would go the way of American Airlines in 1963 and bolt ALPA, had been quite lenient with them. But once the heavy politicking began at the BOD meeting, O'Donnell's lack of attention to his friends was not what proved fatal. Rather, it was something quite strange, particularly for a man who in 1970 had pioneered sophisticated campaign techniques. O'Donnell's three previous winning campaigns had featured buttons, posters, and brochures. In 1982, he had nothing. In effect, he had no campaign. According to several witnesses, O'Donnell's campaign manager, Bavis, still hurt and disappointed at O'Donnell's supplanting of his own candidacy, seemed to lack heart. O'Donnell himself, who should have been out in the hallways shaking hands and personally courting undecided delegates, instead sat in his suite, seemingly disinterested. When his presence was necessary to seal a bargain or make a deal, he was unavailable, and not because O'Donnell didn't know how to make deals. Certainly, the Delta machine did not shrink from cutting a deal. Realizing that victory or defeat hung in the balance, the Duffy forces used their ultimate weapon, promise of the coveted job of executive administrator, to sew up victory. 
with their intelligence network telling them that their vote count was still below what was needed for a first-ballot victory, Duffy offered the job to John Erickson of Western Airlines, a mid-sized pilot group with 1,223 votes. The night before voting began, Duffy's campaign manager struck the deal. The Western pilot group was under severe stress. Western was everybody's next candidate to follow Braniff into bankruptcy. Under John Erickson's leadership, the Western pilot group had, in 1981, engineered a careful series of concessions that not only saved the airline, but avoided furloughs, too. Erickson's extraordinary handling of this crisis allowed Western to live on until 1986, when it merged with Delta. Had Erickson not provided the necessary leadership, Western clearly would not have been a viable airline, and hence not a merger candidate. Duffy had good reasons for wanting Erickson as his executive administrator, not the least of which was that he was an early Duffy booster who had committed months earlier. But the problem was Erickson's fellow Western pilots. O'Donnell's pitch that Western was in deep trouble and that only he had the political connections to save the airline had considerable appeal for them. But ultimately, the prospect of seeing one of their own at the elbow of power in Washington struck the Western pilots as better job insurance than O'Donnell's claims of influence with Ronald Reagan. O'Donnell played the Reagan card on the first day of the convention. Not only would Secretary of Transportation Drew Lewis personally address the BOD, but Ronald Reagan himself made a short videotape address. On Election Day, the pattern that had characterized the various debates at pilot domiciles around the country repeated itself. Hank Duffy took the high road, pledging improved communications, better control of ALPA's finances, and unity across company lines. O'Donnell's brief speech was curiously muted, tired, and almost subdued. Only John Gratz seemed to enjoy himself on the rostrum. During the various debates, he had taken considerable pleasure in criticizing O'Donnell. Gratz's remarks were directed at United's Blue Skies contract and the rash of concessionary demands that were ravaging ALPA. He played on the general resentment many pilots felt over O'Donnell's kid-glove handling of the United Pilot Group during the 1980 BOD. Whatever negative baggage O'Donnell owned, Gratz made sure it didn't get lost. At last, it was over. All the speeches delivered, all the deals cut. Skip Eglett, who held the rostrum during the actual election, notified the delegates of the rules and acted as chairman of the convention. O'Donnell's supporters knew they couldn't win on the first ballot, but they had good reason to suppose that Duffy would fall short of the 13,644 votes necessary to elect. John Gratz harbored some vain hopes that a deadlocked convention might turn to him as a compromise. Duffy's managers were certain that if their man did not win on the first ballot, O'Donnell's legendary deal-making skills would find room to maneuver and that would spell doom on the second ballot. The vote went exactly as the Delta machine had planned. Among the elephants, Northwest, Delta, and most of Eastern fell to Duffy. O'Donnell got United and Pan Am, Gratz got TWA, 
and a bigger chunk of Eastern than O'Donnell. Among the mid-sized airlines, Duffy got Continental, Piedmont, Republic, and Western. O'Donnell took only half of U.S. Air. But among the Group 4 and 5 airlines, the Ozarks and the Frontiers, O'Donnell swept the board. So, the ants went mostly to O'Donnell. Duffy needed 13,624 to win. He got 13,753, a slender 129 votes more than necessary. Putting him over the edge were the 250 votes from the likes of Air North, Aspen, Revolution, and Ross, which Chuck Huttinger of Taka siphoned away to Duffy. And so, with breathtaking suddenness, the roster was called, the votes were cast and counted. There were calls for Duffy to come forward, but he was away from the floor. He appeared within a few minutes and made gracious healing remarks. O'Donnell, concealing his bitter disappointment well, resumed the rostrum and went on with his duties and announced his support for the new president without question. Next time on Flying the Line, Alpa elects its fifth president. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 7, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright Alpa 2023, all rights reserved.